Hi, welcome back to Presidential Profiles. I'm Philip and Robert. And we're heading into our second part on LBJ versus Nixon and the Vietnam War. The first episode, we covered basically the background to the Vietnam War, including the French War and some of the views and makeup of, of the leaders, the presidents that served during the post-World War II up until Vietnam period. Today we're going to be zeroing in on Lyndon B. Johnson and how he began the war in Vietnam, why he began the war. But to get there, we'll have to talk about his background and who he is as a person. So I'll let you begin there. So um, Johnson essentially is an accidental president. Um, there's a lot of debate about whether JFK actually wanted Johnson on the ticket with him uh, in 1960. Uh, there's a school of thought which believe that Kennedy offered uh, several major Democratic politicians uh, a shot at the vice presidency as uh, a matter of respect and a matter of uh, allying them with his ticket and that Johnson's avidity, Johnson's uh, extraordinary interest in, in, in the position uh, impressed Kennedy enough that he he took him and what is avidity uh, his just yeah you know I'm excited about this I want to I want to get it you know um, why would Johnson want a basically toothless position it was higher okay. and he would be part of the administration but higher than Senate Majority Leader Senate Majority Leader is one of the highest offices in the land well, and, and this, this goes back essentially, I think, to Johnson's deep personal insecurities. I mean, he was a college graduate at a time when the minority of men were high school graduates. You know, even though he went to a third-rate school, he did have, a, have the sheepskin. Um, he was a trained teacher, which, you know, it's reasonably... Was he interested uh, in teaching? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think he. I think he liked doing it. Uh, you know, so he had a he had a profession. Uh, he became he had become a very wealthy man. Uh, he might have been, uh, with the exception of like Nelson Rockefeller, he might have been uh, one of the richest national politicians by then. Not richer than Kennedy. Oh, all right, so it's Kennedy as well. Uh, outside of the ones who inherited wealth, you know. And how did he make his money? Uh, in, in broadcasting. Why don't you his, go, his, do you think it would be smart to go back and kind of build it up from his childhood insecurities? So, so well, I don't know that much about his childhood insecurities. Okay. I mean, I, I don't see any reason for Johnson to be insecure. Okay. And, and that, that's what I'm working on. That, you know, he had, a, he had a degree, he had money, he had a, a, a tremendous physique. He was smarter than most people he met. But I think once he got up into those stratospheric heights of being in the inner circle in Washington, 
he started dealing with people who made him feel insecure. I mean, you know, he just felt like, you know, people like Nelson Rockefeller were better than him. What was Nelson Rockefeller's personality and makeup like? Was he the, he wasn't, he had had John D. Rockefeller before him, right? Uh, what was he, uh, John D. was his father. And Nelson was ambitious as well? So, well, Nelson was the governor of New York. He ran for president twice. Right. You know, I mean, that's a sign of ambition, right? Right. But different makeup than John. Uh, uh, same makeup, different, different uh, forum, different, different uh, coliseum. Same makeup, still, still a driving ambition. You know, still a uh, make an empire, get to the top. You know, and and I mean, uh, you know, I mean, governor of New York back then was, I mean. Being a governor of a state's a big deal. Being a governor of a big state is a bigger deal. Right. And, you know, back then, being governor, I mean, New York was the empire state. It was the biggest state in population, controlled New York City, uh, the, the, the most of American industry, outside of maybe the auto industry or the steel industry, was still located in New York. Right. You know, I mean, it was a big deal to be governor of New York. And... You know, the only the only bigger thing was be president. And do you think LBJ <coughs> felt inferior to him? Uh, LBJ would look at me and say, you know, I'm not looking at uh, John Connolly or Orville Favis, the governor of Arkansas. I'm looking at people like Nelson Rockefeller. Look at him. I mean, look at his house. I mean, they have 70, 80... They, well... I, I saw a thing about uh, uh, Rockefeller's great-nephew, David Rockefeller III or something like that, mm -hmm. <coughs> who was like in his mid-60s. Mm -hmm. uh, David Rockefeller, who was the Nelson's big brother and who was like the successful one in business, the, the uh, former president our CEO of uh, Chase Manhattan Bank. Okay. Uh, now Morgan Chase. Right. Um, they're they're selling off parts of his estate. They had two pictures. One was eighty million dollars. The other seventy million dollars. Right. You know, that's just two pictures. Right. You know, furniture. Uh, they have stuff that Napoleon liked. I mean, it was Napoleon's, uh, his sugar bowl or some tea service or something that belonged to Napoleon that was his favorite one. Wow. You know, so, you know, Johnson would look at people like that and go like, holy shit, you know. Sure. Uh, and, and, of course, Nelson went to Dartmouth, you know, Ivy League College. Uh, he had, um, what's that, what do you call that when you can't, when, no, when you reverse, when you, when you, dyslexia. Dyslexia. He had dyslexia, so he had to memorize everything, so he worked super hard. And Rockefeller? Yeah. Um, you know, and then you think of all the lesser people, but who are at that stratospheric height, who Johnson, you know, a little boy from, you know, the Perdinales River, you know, flows into Austin, you know, Country Hick. You know, he, he felt totally outclassed. 
but he felt as if he was one of Roosevelt's political heirs. So he deserved Did he know it. Roosevelt? Yes. And Roosevelt took a shine to him? Roosevelt took a shine to everybody, right? You know, I mean, Roosevelt had that kind of a personality. He could sit in a room with you, shake your hand, tell a couple of stories, and you thought he was, you know, you thought he, you were his golden-haired nephew. And that's exactly what happened to LBJ? And that was what happened to LBJ. At what age? Mid-30s. So they weren't close confidants, but they had an association. Correct. And what was the driving, what was driving LBJ? I mean, not well, every greed. boy, not every, okay, <laughs> but not every boy from Texas, where he's coming from near Austin, kind of backwater country, that goes to a third grade school whose father fell out of favor, you know, just because you have a big physique and above average, he's not genius IQ, above average IQ, what is separating him to where he can, he can keep moving up and up? It, well, the family. I mean, you know, the... Texas founding family. You know, I mean, they broke away from Mexico. They started their own country. They were a prominent state in the Confederacy. I mean, there's there's just a, a you know, everything's bigger in Texas. The ambitions, the egos. Uh, you know, Johnson wanted to make his mark. And it was for Texas. It was for the whole South. And as, as the majority leader in the Senate, his power base were the Southern segregationist senators who, you know, I mean, they all were in their fourth and fifth terms. And was he junior to them? He was junior to them. So how did he get up the rank? Um, Texas... Is he like a Southern version of Schumer? Texas is viewed, even though it was one of the Confederate states, it's viewed as a Southwestern state. Okay. As much as a Southern state. All right. And, you know, Dallas is on the Great Plains. Houston is an oil patch. El Paso is definitely southwestern Mextex kind of stuff. San Antonio, Mextex. So, so Johnson wasn't seen as, you know, the uh, southern plantation, you know, white-suited, Panama-headed, you know. Right. So Johnson would see more as a cowboy type. Right. So that gave him a certain amount of uh, distance. And Johnson was very much a New Dealer. So he had some credibility with the liberals. So he was, he was able to meld the liberals and the southern segregationists. Did he... Nobody else could do that. Did he... Was he fond of East Coast establishment? He probably felt, and with a lot of justification, that they viewed him uh, the way they viewed Lincoln three or four generations before. That they saw him as a, as a, as a crude, vulgar, unreasonably crude and vulgar, provincial, person so how do you get from being a what, what how about his personality how do you get from being a because that's his status how do you get from being a crude and vulgar it, it had to be in his personal dealings yeah he was free of certain marks that would hold him back like he's not from georgia or south carolina so he's not going to be you know stamped racist first day on the job but 
there's something about his personality, magnetism, or or force of will, or maybe something along those lines that's, that enables him to become an effective senator, get to the top. Uh, what made him an effective legislator? He worked at it, for one. I mean, he, he was just tireless. Um, Did he like the cut and thrust of the job? Was he a deal-maker? He, he, was, he was a deal-maker. Um, he had a, a, a very strong ability to meet with an older man and develop a, almost like a, a father-son relationship with him. Uh, it was very effective with Richard Russell, the, the most powerful and the leader, the direct leader of the Southern Bloc. Southern Coalition, basically. Yeah. And what, what state was he from? Georgia. Okay. Uh, the, he, 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 the, he, had, he had his family and his wife treat him like a, a fond uncle. Lyndon was able to treat him like an esteemed father figure. Russell, who was very lonely when he was in Washington, responded. Uh, Humphrey, they had a very close personal relationship. Humphrey was from where? Uh, Minnesota. But Humphrey, Humphrey was the leader of the liberals. Okay. And they were more of a peer relationship, more like a, a football quarterback and center okay. kind of relationship. Okay. And for the people who are not familiar with American football, the center is the one who comes up and actually takes the ball in his hand and passes it back to the quarterback to begin play in uh, in American football. And center has to protect the quarterback during that transfer when he gives him the ball and then protect him while the quarterback passes off the ball, hands off the ball, or passes it, transfers the ball to whichever player is going to actually carry out the play. So uh, they, they, they had a very, very robust relationship. Not that they were friends, right. but they worked together well. And Lyndon was, you know, he could tell you one thing and then do something else. And still have you like him afterwards. But how can you do that for long? People will feel like, you're, like they're getting cheated. Uh, <coughs> because there's opposition. Okay. You know, it's like, if you want this at all, we got to do these kind of creepy things. Was he to get it? Was did his pragmatism help him in that he didn't really? He, from what I can understand, he didn't necessarily take a lot of stands on principle. He was a deal maker, right? You know, I mean, it was he, but he was a new dealer. I mean, you have to think, you know, the 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 pragmatism, the blend of populism, and uh, progressivism that marked the New Deal. I mean, this I, I always think this was Roosevelt's genius as a politician, that he was able to ideologically blend progressivism and populism and bring those disparate elements together in the Democratic Party. And that, with the uh, backing of the ethnic urban machines in the major northern cities, was an unbeatable, unbeatable combination. And... Um Johnson, uh, what was he? Would he bully senators? 
I don't know if you can bully another senator if you're a senator. It's a club. All right, so what would he do? Um, basically, he had the ability to figure out what the senators wanted and needed. Politically, personally, financially, and get that to them. Why was he considered so good at, at being a legislator? Um, there's an instance, like, I, he met with uh, his house, uh, opposite number, and the house member... Was he ever Speaker of the House? No, he's in the Senate. I thought you said he started on the House. But he, he went to the Senate okay. and rose up in the leadership in the Senate. Uh... They were it, it was it was a conference committee and the, the house chairman came in and made some demands and Lyndon acceded to the demand, but he acceded to it in a way that gave him the gavel so that he then could control all the amendments. And then he just amended the thing to get what he wanted. Well, I mean, that seems like two things, toughness and also... Like, or tenacity, but also very being very clever. Yeah. I mean, you know what, what the smart lawyer will always say, you know, if you want something in the contract and the other person opposes it, we just stop calling that, figure out something else to call it, and put it in. Right. And Johnson was an expert at that. Who? What other Senate Majority Leader or Speaker of the House would you, since Johnson, would you compare to his? Well, statute? Rayburn, obviously. And, and again, Rayburn and Johnson were very close, uh, politically and Rayburn, personally. Rayburn served in what? Rayburn period? was the Speaker of the House. At the uh, same time? Yes, and he's, he's like a, a, a legislative legend. And he was, he was actually Johnson's mentor. He was the one on whom Johnson practiced his skills, learned how to be a good protege. Okay. Uh, but, but Rayburn just was legendarily mm -hmm. tough. Ruthless, uh, you know, didn't didn't care if anybody liked him, didn't have a family, so all he did was worked. Right. And do you do you you couldn't you couldn't insult his wife and get to him because he didn't have a wife. Right. And do you um, has there been anybody that you see since that's been at that level? Pelosi actually, I think, is is Close. quite tough and forceful like they were. And as smart as Johnson? Pelosi has the same elephantine grasp of legislative detail as, as Rayburn and Johnson. But Pelosi doesn't have somebody in the Senate. And she also doesn't have the Rayburn physical has. presence that um, Johnson had. Well, Rayburn didn't have the physical presence either. But didn't you consider Johnson's physical presence to be one of his for for Johnson attributes? it was, but you know I mean that doesn't work with everybody, and it was kind of unique about Johnson. What about Johnson's private life? Oh, that's a real dismal swamp, a miasma of scandal and uh, sleaze. I Never mean, caught up to him. The the uh, ballot box stuffing in the Rio Grande Valley that got him into the Senate. The long affair with Senator Glass's wife. The Where's Senator Glass from? Virginia. The complete 
theft, the complete corruption of using the FCC to advance his, his wife's broadcasting outlets in Which Texas. is how he got rich. Which is how he got rich. Can you explain what happened there? Not, I mean, it's, it's complicated mm -hmm. and, um, you know, suffice it to say that Johnson controlled the membership of the FCC mm -hmm. and their budget mm -hmm. and their office space and their perks and their salaries and how much staff they could have. And his wife was in broadcasting. Television? And his 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 wife was in broadcasting. She had uh, she came from a family that owned radio stations. Oh, radio stations. Okay. And she got into TV when TV came up. You know, I mean, it was it was kind of natural. I mean, she she would have done that, but not at without that London. But she wouldn't have had you know the favorable rulings from the SC, FCC on so many instances when uh, the law on uh, control of anti-monopoly uh, anti could have been invoked, but wasn't. Was he a sociopath? Um, if he wasn't, he's a real, you know, he's just a hero away. He is a, I'm imagining he lied a lot. Well, I mean, you can't lie continuously to other members of the Senate. Right, because they'll catch on. Because they'll catch on. But, I mean, he had this affair, you know, for 9 or 10, 11 years, and had a very close relationship with the husband of the wife he was having the affair with. Plus, he had to lie to Lady Bird. <coughs> yeah. And did Lady Bird live in Washington with him? Yeah. And how did the affair end? I think she died. And he got rich off of the FCC deal. Well, he got rich off his wife's broadcasting, but his wife's broadcasting empire grew. It, you know, it was. It, I think there was a four station limit back then, mm -hmm. and she got the four stations, but she got the four primo stations. Right. You know. Do you think that? How did how did Johnson get uh, the marriage to Bird? Uh, I think he was uh, persuasive when he wanted to be. I think she found him exciting. Um, she probably thought he was handsome. I mean, did he consider himself handsome? He considered himself the sexiest man alive, which uh, is kind of ridiculous, you know, when you look at is that the true pictures that of him. Yeah. And was he? What, at what stage in in the in his life did he marry her? They were young. They were you know the normal marrying age for back. Did then. he love her? I would say yes. I mean, it was a lifelong marriage. I mean, like 40 years or 37, 38 years. And they, they, the, like, like during the 1960 presidential campaign, he campaigned in the South, basically to give Kennedy credibility among the rednecks. And in, in one instance, uh, the Did Kennedy need it to be Oh, Nixon? yeah. He needed every vote to be Nixon. Yeah. Well, he only beat him by 110,000 votes. Um, at, at one instance, they, they were in some town in central Texas, and the, there was a big crowd that wouldn't, uh, wouldn't let him in the hotel. And Johnson basically had to, you know, force his way in and, you know, took Lady Bird in with him. And, and you know, Lady Bird was the one who got the, co the crowd calmed down, got Lyndon calmed down. And 
consoled him. You know, people really do love you, Lyndon. You know, just because they're out there calling you all kinds of names. You know, they're just excited because of the election. You know, they right. really do love you, Lyndon. Right. You know? And do you feel that? So Lyndon helped Kennedy in '60. Did you did did Lady Bird when she got with Lyndon? Did she know that he could become president? Who knows? You know, I mean, it was so far-fetched. I think she probably just saw him as being very idealistic, very capable. Again, she probably thought he was really exciting. You know, you know I, I mean, how do you be with somebody in their late 20s or early 30s and possibly think, yeah, you know, with the guy who's going to be president? Oh, you know, what about if you're married 25 Kennedy? years. I, I think even with him. I think she thought Nixon was going to be somebody. I don't know that she thought he was going to be president of the United States. I think uh, after he got to be vice president, it probably it probably came up that they started thinking, oh yeah, you know, what's the next thing? There, and whose polit whose marriage draws parallels to? LBJ's and Lady Bird's marriage. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could think Hillary and Bill. Except for the fact that Hillary doesn't have, that Lady Bird has the financial backing that Hillary didn't have. Well, Hillary added a lot of, of money to that marriage. I mean, Bill made money like Johnson never did. But Bill got out of politics at a young age. Do you see similarities between Johnson's personality and Bill's personality? Public, Did, and what does Bill think about Johnson? Publicly, yes. Publicly, yes. I mean, you know, there. Well, I mean, <coughs> there's that sleazy Southern politician, you know, big guy, grabs women, you know, very vulgar about the way he advances his sexual prowess. Uh, not prowess, his sexual demands. Mm -hmm. uh, Well-educated, shrewd, uh, real sharp operators. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they both kind of both had Both had could integrate anger when they needed it. Johnson's anger was legendary, but I think Johnson really got pissed off. And Bill? Uh, Bill knew, you know, like he could, you know, pop the cork on the bottle, let the anger spill out, but it was more contrived, it was more controlled. I think Lyndon really lost it. And where do you see the differences between the two? Well, there's a generational difference. So, uh, I actually think Johnson is the more crude, more just, I mean, like picking the dogs up by the ears on national TV. You know, I mean, that was just completely appalling. And they're a basset hound, so it's a, it's a heavy dog. You know, I mean, even... If Bill hadn't seen Lyndon do it and heard the reaction, Bill wouldn't have done something like that. Um, 
racing, racing around in his Lincoln with press, you know, when he was on a ranch, you know, doing like 110 on dirt roads, having the, the longhorn horns on the on the on the grill of his Lincoln. You know, that those I mean Bill wouldn't have done any of that. Even if he had the money. Um you never see Bill in a cowboy hat. Is Bill I mean it's hard to imagine someone more calculating than Johnson, but Bill might be more calculating than Johnson then. They're both they're both extremely talented uh, calculating sly subtle players I mean you don't get to that level in Washington DC if you know I mean when you blow your nose you think about which nostril I'm gonna make the snot come out of because there's a political reason for it you know do you think that Bill is a better executive Yes, by far. I mean, I don't think Johnson was a, was a gifted executive at all. all. Right, so you've talked about some of Johnson's political gifts. I don't know um, if you want anything else. Talk about his failures as an executive, and then talk about how he comes into the war, why he went into the war, what the ramifications were. So, in legislation, and in the upper chamber, of an American legislature. And this might be true abroad as well, but it certainly is true in this country. The crafting of legislation is very personal. It's very minute. You know, there's a deal for every clause that's put into a bill. Somebody has to get something. Because you're going to turn around, you're going to ask the taxpayer for money. So before a politician is going to turn around and ask the taxpayer for tax dollars, he's got to deliver something. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a delivery, there's a deal and a delivery for every line. Item. Every line. Mm -hmm. All right, and that requires, if I give you something, I have less to give the guy over there right and if he asks for something it might affect what I've promised you right so it's a very hands-on very minutely detailed process right a lot of promises and you all got to figure out how to deal with the with the, the the House of Representatives how to you know bamboozle all of them right and then whatever happens when it goes into the into the executive branch. Right. When you're the president, you're setting policy. You're thinking of basically 13, uh, 13 broad policy areas, defense, agriculture, foreign relations, like that. And so you basically, even if you only dealt with the cabinet, you have twice this twice the number of people under you that you could possibly control as an effective executive. And you have the whole executive wing. You have the whole West Wing and the White House to control. 1,500 employees in your department. So you have the whole federal bureaucracy and all this. So you have to delegate. So somebody like Trump or Reagan, who are 
our master delegators, who are, are uh, Reagan in particular, you know, was good at formulating a policy that his chief of staff could understand. And then the chief of staff was able to communicate it down through the executive branch, through the executive office, and the executive office would then transmit it to the executive departments. Mm -hmm. And the government ran very effectively. Johnson didn't have the slightest idea how all that worked. He literally signed or initialed 1,500 documents a day. People were constantly bringing him in papers and he was writing his name on it or initialing LBJ. You know, I mean, he had to decide everything. He's a micromanager. Yes. And because I mean, he had been trained in the Senate. Because he had been trained in the Senate. I mean, you can't run a store that way. If you're running a big department store, you can't be out on the floor all the time telling the clerks how to sell how to sell shoes or how to sell hardware or something. Right. You know, and Johnson just didn't get that. I mean, he thought you ran the, the executive branch the same way you ran the Senate. And what, so this created, so coming, so Johnson comes into office. He comes in of, after the assassination of Kennedy. Some people have said that his New Deal, I mean, his Great Society program is the embodiment of Kennedy's ideals. You can comment on that. Obviously, he's ill-equipped for the job. He must be, is he, let's also talk about his, what it did for his psyche was he overwhelmed was he did he feel in charge did he notice right away that he, he was kind of punching above his weight and then how does it move into Vietnam so um, Johnson really came into national prominence after Eisenhower had a heart attack in just before the 1956 election okay. or just after again and uh, Johnson, who did Eisenhower run against? Adelaide Stevenson twice, and he's governor of Illinois. And Johnson had also had a heart attack, so he had two of our senior leaders, who both had heart disease, serious heart disease. Uh, but Johnson went on this really well publicized heart repair protocol. Like Bill Clinton. Yeah, so, you know, it was, you know, pretty much the public felt, okay, reassured, you know, he had a heart attack, but he's doing what he should be doing to take care of himself now. Did he lose weight? Who knows? You know, with Johnson, you never know. I mean, what he says and what happens, you know, who knows? So, but, but <coughs> Johnson became prominent in the space program. You know, that's why Houston is Houston, as far as the space program is concerned. He became prominent on defense. He became prominent on domestic, on all, all manner of domestic programs, education. Um, so when Kennedy tapped him, even though it was the first time since like 1920, first time in 40 years, two senators were nominated by the same party. Um, Who was Nixon running with? Uh, um, well, he was a senator too. But, I thought he was a governor. No, he was a senator from Massachusetts. Oh, who he picked was a senator. Yeah. Who um, oh, Henry, Henry was Cabot Lodge. At the time. Henry Cabot Lodge, okay. And Nixon was the vice president. So, <coughs> um, 
it really looked like the American. Can I ask one more thing? Yep. Did Johnson do more for the Kennedy ticket than Henry Cabot Lodge did for the Nixon ticket, or no? Well, Henry Cabot Lodge was from Massachusetts. But didn't so, JFK win Massachusetts? Um, Nixon needed shoring up, not as not as big as he would have, because Henry Cabot Lodge had a following in Massachusetts. But Nixon needed shoring up with the Republican moderates and the Republican liberals. And there were liberals in the Republican Party at that time. Right. So Henry Cabot Lodge helped him with those. Right. He also helped him with the Eastern Establishment, whom Nixon was weak with, because he was a quintessential, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the Boston Brahmins are so pure, the Cabots talk only to the lodges, okay. and the lodges talk only to the God. Okay. To God. Right. I mean, this is one of those lodges. Okay. So... And also one of those cabins. <laughs> right. um, so it was like the Republican establishment, the West Coast, Western Republican Heartland Party versus the, the Democratic North and the Democratic South. All right. And, and Lyndon, you know, gave Kennedy a lot of credibility. I mean, Kennedy was seen as a hardworking, effective senator. Johnson was seen as the legislative master. But once Johnson became vice president, Bobby Kennedy in particular had no use for him whatsoever. He disliked him. Disliked him. And the Harvard... Why? Huh? Why? They just didn't like each other. Bobby was more of a, of a self-righteous type. Bobby, you know, if he didn't... I mean, you got on his wrong side and you were on his wrong side. He didn't. He was. Low, he had high disagreeability. Very disagree. He could be disagreeable. Yeah. And Johnson's. And Johnson, you know, Johnson with him. was the sort of person, you know, he'd want to push around somebody like Bobby Kennedy, and Bobby Kennedy would resent it. So you do think that Johnson likes to push people around? Yeah. Oh, obviously. I you mean, just said he didn't bully. I don't think I said that. You said senators can't bully other senators. Other senators. So he's everybody bullying. else. So he's pushing everybody else. No, his, I mean, his staff, he was notorious for abusing his staff. In what way? His, his... Making him work so hard uh, when something didn't go right. It, it didn't even matter if they were exemplary in their performance. If it didn't work out right, he was going to be up one side and down the other on them. And, 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 and the thing was, you know, he would, he would like just like rip them apart. And then he'd like give him a new watch or something. Right, or, so that's you know. the thing about him. He doesn't just have this aggressive side. He also has kind of a charming side. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, you asked before if he's a sociopath. I mean, sociopaths are like that. Right, right. All right, so, he's, so he gets out on the wrong foot with Bobby, and he's relegated. Well, the whole Harvard bunch, the Irish mafia, I mean, everybody around Kennedy hated John. Does he have anybody on his side? Pretty much he was isolated. And the other thing was, once he left the Senate, he wasn't in the club anymore. Okay. So, so he must have felt like he made a big mistake. He felt like he made, yeah, he, he made a huge mistake. <coughs> he, probably, he probably took 15 years off his life. Doing what? From uh, leaving the Senate. But doing what? Like why? His stress? The stress. The, sense, the loss of self-esteem. He did lose a lot of self-esteem? Yeah. Did he talk about it? Who did he go to? Uh, Doris, I can't think of her middle name, Doris Kearns. 
she wrote she she like lived with him for a year and a half at the end of his life and wrote well I can't think of the title of the book was he self-aware he was reflective after he retired during the time that he was actively in politics he wasn't because he was too busy then when he was vice president he spent so much time you know building up the office of the vice presidency he went on all these trips how did he, how did he yeah how did he occupy his time well he basically went on trips and you know had a lot of fanfare stood around and had people fawn over him that's all he could do to keep himself afloat yeah you know i remember but he was miserable uh, one of the publications that my father used to read was some kind of department of the army publication and there was one of them i mean johnson wrote a little piece for it but it had a, a, a white cover, the vice presidential seal on it, you know, and all this folderol about, you know, how great the vice president was. Really? Yeah. All right, so he's isolated. Is he in depression? He was extremely depressed and upset. I mean, he felt like he had taken a bad career move. He, it's not you one know, that you can exactly get out of either. Garner, who was uh, also a Texas politician who was Roosevelt's first and second term vice president, you know, famously said, you know, being vice president is like carrying around a picture of cold piss. You know, and Johnson thought even what? less nobody, of the office. Nobody, it just sucks and nobody, nobody wants what nobody, you had. Nobody wants it, nobody cares. Everybody's glad that you got it, not him, you know. And, and and Johnson took that very personal. And, it's funny you know, because he had been so enthusiastic about getting the job. It shows that his judgment wasn't always a hundred percent. Well, yeah, you know, and, and I mean, there was a lot, a lot, you know, that he wanted to quit. And then when when Kennedy gets shot, though, Johnson realized this is my big moment, and he figured out how to patch it up with Bobby long enough. Now, are you cynical about the transition? Do you feel that I'm not getting into conspiracies? I'm just saying, are you cynical about? Johnson after that or do you feel Johnson like Johnson really stepped up and became a better person and worked through it or do you feel that he was opportunistic took advantage and then went back to his old ways so Johnson's natural home was between San Antonio Texas and Austin Texas okay. and that was where his wife had her, her TV stations. That was where his relatives were. Uh, that was where he grew up. That was where he taught. But he really, really, his home was Washington, D.C. That's where he spent his adult life. Where he spent his adult life. And he, he moved there as a, as, Pennsylvania Avenue. as a house staffer. Capitol, White House. Yeah, but Capitol isn't on Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeah, it is. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Do you know where he lived or no? Northwest somewhere. Okay. So, um... Johnson... His, 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 his home was in Washington, but his, 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 his roots were in Texas. Uh, but as an adult, he spent so much time in the capital that he really thought the institutions of the government were magic. I mean, he had like a religious awe 
you know, think of, of a devout Roman Catholic going to St. Peter's. Vatican, yeah. That was the way he felt about the capital. Yeah. So when Kennedy... When he, was his family civic-minded? Well, they were all in politics. But from local, way back. municipal, yeah. or yeah. county-wide. County. And then he brought it first to the state level. Yeah. He was never governor of Texas. No, he was he was always a legislator. House and Senate. Yeah. All right, go ahead. So, um, so that's where his interest came from, though? Right. His his own family had interest? Right. Okay. But he took it to the next level. His his brother's name was Sam Houston. Okay. The Sam pa- Houston the founder Johnson. Of, the founder of, of Texas. Texas, right. So, um, he understood how he had to connect with the American people for the transition of power to him for his legitimacy as the president and for the advancement of the country. Was he scared? Hell yes. Okay. I mean, wouldn't you be? I'm sure, but I'm just asking if he was. You know, I mean, what did, what did Truman say? He, you know, he <laughs> said like, you know, he felt like, you know, the stars and the moon had just fallen on him. Okay. You know, supposedly he went to Mrs. Roosevelt. Her husband had just died. And, you know, being a Southern gentleman, he offered her help, and she said, Mr. Truman, the one who needs help now is you. <laughs> you know, that was the way Lyndon felt. And he had he had to get himself away from the assassination, which was in Texas. He had to get himself away from, out from under the Kennedy shadow. Right. And he had to solve the civil rights problem, which was tearing the country apart, you know, about to go violent. And he was the legislative master, and he said, you know, I can do it. I mean, I have over 150 pieces of legislation that I can pull out of the drawer and start passing. Why wasn't Kennedy able to do that? Kennedy wasn't a legislator. Okay. I mean, he, was, he made his, his fame in the Senate as an investigator. He was on what they called the McClellan Commission mm-hmm. and investigated the, the ties between organized crime and organized labor, mm-hmm. and that was really where he made his 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 name as a nationally prominent politician. Was he anti-union? It, well, he wasn't pro-union. It's weird because didn't he get help from the unions to get into office? Um, there's always been a very very difficult relationship between the Democratic Party and the labor unions. I mean, you think about uh, Roosevelt and the Roosevelt Coalition, Southern racists. Midwestern populists, urban ethnics, liberals, and unions. He had the southern racists on his side. Oh yeah. How did he get them? That if you couldn't be a, if you couldn't get them, you couldn't be a Democratic nominee back then. But how did he get them? Well, he had that that uh, institute at Warm Springs for polio, and he basically. Uh, Toured around the countryside, talked to all the old white farmers, told them how much he was going to help them, and they went for it. Well, they were tended to vote Democratic because they were Democrats. They were all Democrats. And they just voted, that's the way they voted. Well, but they didn't like Yankees. But they always thought, if we can get a Yankee who likes us into the White House, you know, not the same as having one of our guys up there, but, you know, close enough. Now, LBJ, I think, was a personally a, a racist, didn't like blacks. Was that incorrect? He didn't live in a part of Texas where there are a lot of blacks. Uh-huh. 
So he probably didn't have very well organized ideas about race. Mm -hmm. um, he appointed Ralph Bunch to a, a number of prominent positions in the government. Mm -hmm. um, he appointed Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, he had a lot of special commissions for um, the Massachusetts senator, um, African-American senator whose name, uh, Brooke, Senator Brooke. And he was willing to pass all the civil rights And he passed the civil rights so legislation. So there's not indications that he's anti-black. So, you know, it was a very, very complicated Southern trying to do the right thing. Was he motivated by guilt, or what was his feeling? What And what did he think of the race riots and everything? Well, he didn't like them, obviously. I mean, you know, who wants to be president and have race riots going on? Was um, he Would he say sympathetic things on TV, publicly? No. No. But he wasn't, because they always say Nixon was very covert, but pro-white against the black... Um, uh, so Nixon, Nixon, Nixon advanced what they called the Southern strategy, which was a direct Republican appeal to the white racists in the South, which was a reversal of their role since the Civil War, a hundred years. And but you could say, but you could say that LBJ in in sixty four was also appealing, seems like, to the white Southern racists and. The black civil rights people. Well, he lost the South. Oh, he lost the South in 64. Yeah. To who? Goldwater. And so Goldwater is really the first Republican that wins the, the, the white Southern yeah. racist. Yeah, and that was, that was where, they, that was where the parties, court. you know. I mean, Roosevelt kind of flipped the parties, but, you know, not entirely. But, well, he but, never got rid of the racist wing. Right, but Johnson, I mean. And when, Johnson was fine to be done with the racist wing? Was he worried so, about it? So when a, Johnson, it doesn't seem like he would when be Johnson worried about it as a was nominated, evil. when Johnson was nominated for president, that was 1964, mm -hmm. and the Democratic um, convention was held in Atlantic City, mm -hmm. and there were two delegations from Mississippi. There was a delegate, and I think Georgia as well, but I remember the one about Mississippi. There was a normal Democratic establishment delegation who were, you know, the usual suspects, you know, the county courthouse politicians or the hangers-on who wanted to go to the National Convention. And then there was a freedom delegation, racially mixed. This is in 64? And, and uh, the Credentials Committee of the Democratic National Convention had to decide which one to seat. And Johnson didn't want to be involved in that. But he got some, one of his aides, Nicholas Katzen, back to work out a compromise. I think they ended up seating half of each of the so delegations. So Johnson was in a way on the on the actual like the actual detail like not the details of it, but the, the the place like where the rubber hit the road. Oh yeah. What? He was there. But he's also not the, he's not choosing to say, All right, I want the I want the the traditional people out and I want the Freedom Caucus. Johnson in. didn't have the imagination to see 
Democratic Party in the South without the racists and the moderates in it. And was very influential in keeping the Democratic Party more toward the right on domestic issues. Um, you know, he famously stated, we can't survive as a political movement in the South if every respectable person becomes a Republican. It's interesting. Obviously, <clears throat> respectable blacks weren't becoming Republicans. Right. Well, it's interesting to think that, I mean, by the end, we'll have to talk about his legacy towards Democrats because I know that when he left, he was, because of the war, he was historically unpopular. Well, blacks like him. Yeah, because he did a lot of legislation in their favor. And this is what I'm saying. But there is a nasty rumor, there is a nasty rumor even among the blacks that he disliked blacks personally, but that he passed legislation that was favorable to them, so they accept him even though they might not like him. It's, it's, it's very, I mean, Southern white ideas about black people are very complicated. Mm -hmm. I mean, they definitely have their friends. They definitely have people who they really like. There may even be particular black people who they admire the hell out of. Mm -hmm. But they he didn't think, like MLK. They think the white race is superior. He didn't like MLK. We don't know what his particular feeling. We he worked with him pretty well. Okay. You know, there's that movie Martin. Did he Luther like King. Romney's father? George Romney and Lyndon Johnson. I don't think jo Lyndon Johnson had a high opinion of George Romney. Did, were they contemporaries? Um, Romney was one of the people who ran for the Republican Convention in 1964, so Johnson would have had a lot of political intelligence about him, would have paid attention to him. And who did you say won again in 64? Goldwater. Barry Goldwater. Well, he had a pretty easy guy to knock down in 64. He had, he had the weakest Republican to run against. Period. Yeah. Since when? Landon. Landon? What year was that? 36. That was the first um, FDR term? That, well, that was when FDR ran for re-election. And, you know, uh, there was an old expression, as Maine goes, so goes the nation. Mm -hmm. Because uh, the weather in November in Maine is so bad, they vote in mid-October. Mm -hmm. And uh, historically, Maine was a bellwether for the the northern states. And in the 1936 election, Maine and New Hampshire were the only states that went Republican. And so the FDR types, probably Johnson probably got a lot of humor out of this, said, as Maine goes, so goes New Hampshire. Right. Good. Yeah, that's good. Um, uh, but, you know, Goldwater took the... Took the we, I don't want to go, I don't want to okay. go into Goldwater right now because we're going to have to do another episode on LBJ. What I want to touch on just maybe three to five minutes just to end it because we I just want to set the stage we'll do the next episode we'll do finishing going through a bit more of LBJ's presidency and then we'll do a detailed synopsis of how he dealt with the war mm -hmm. but for right now how does all of this race and the legislation that he passed on the domestic front and him getting more whether he was comfortable with the presidency or not I mean, obviously he was comfortable with, the, with getting the legislation through, but what? how does it go side by side with um, him deciding to get into Vietnam? How long was that so on his radar? Was, when did he make the decision? Was, it was 
a lot of people and can think, I say one other thing nowadays the way we look back on it at least from people that weren't didn't experience it they tend to think of it as two different coalitions there and actually you might have mentioned it in one of the previous episodes there's a racist coalition that's pro-Vietnam and then there's a free, what you call a freedom coalition that's anti-Vietnam so it's funny that uh, the way we're talking about LBJ it seems like on the domestic front he's anti-racist but then on the foreign front he's pro-Vietnam so how does that work? So that was the trade-off okay so people like John Stennis the secretary uh, the senator from Mississippi if you save Vietnam from communism mm -hmm. I won't oppose your, uh, ra your racial reconciliation. I won't vote for it. I won't vote for it. But I'm not going to campaign against it. And a lot of so it was a trade-off. Whites agreed with that. Yeah, that was what, basically their position. How long did it take them to get to that position? Well, they wanted Lyndon to succeed, so they kind of just you know said, Lyndon, if you want anything to pass through the Senate, you need us. So it, the, and if you want stuff to pass through the Senate, <coughs> we got to get something back. We got to have something we can take home. So what? And if you're tough on communism, we can back you. So the, and you can get away with that other stuff. So Lyndon, did he want? He really wanted the race bills to pass. Yeah, he wanted. He wanted to be the big emancipator, the big liberator, the, the new big, Lincoln, the, the new, new FDR, Lincoln, the new FDR, war on poverty, war. Yeah. Civil rights, but but probably he wanted even more than being the new FDR. He probably even wanted more than that to be the new Lincoln. And so he wants to be that. He had big aspirations even when he got to office. Oh yeah. But he must have been also realized the fact that he's not as effective in the presidency as he is in the Senate. Or he didn't realize it. He didn't. He didn't understand the presidency well enough to understand that he wasn't. And things went so well for so long for him. And you got to think, I mean, what's it like being in the White House? You got all these Marines, you got all these military aides, you got all these big business types coming, you know, and, you know, being very obsequious, schmoozing, fawning around, schmoozing, yeah. schmoozing you up. Yes, you got all these professors, you know. But what yeah. were his poll numbers like? What was the approval rating like? 63, 64. Well, the whole first term was high. No. Um, it's, it started going down in, in uh, the winter of 67, 68. That's the, the, Tet the end of the first term. The oh, Tet so when, when, what year does he get into Vietnam? Uh, 65. Okay, so he got into it halfway through his first term. Yeah. So it was pretty quick. When he took over... Well, there was a flip. The Tet Offensive caused a big flip. He took over in 63. Was he immediately popular? He had the support of the people, I imagine. The American people rallied around the leader. Right. And then 64, and he, he wiped... He, he and he handled the transition extraordinarily well. I mean, it, it, if you ever want to look at how... Uh, to transition from one leader to another because of an unexpected death, uh -huh. this would be the one to study. And did he just do it naturally, or he, he thought about it? I think, you know, he probably brooded about it while he was vice president. You know, Oh, if, if, Kennedy, <laughs> if Kennedy happens to kick know, the bucket, I'll tell but, you how I'm going to get but, in power. You know, 
he would have never talked about that, right. but he probably hit it pretty well. Well, actually, every vice president has to think about that. Yeah. Um, so the the push to be in Vietnam came from the conservative and moderate elements of the Democratic Party. Probably more from them than from the Republicans at that point. But then also the Republicans, obviously. The, re, the I mean, the Republicans are always, you know, for muscular national defense. And, and you know, and that goes across their whole spectrum. And Johnson felt... Johnson Did Johnson believe that to be a great president, he would also have to be a war president? They all think that. Okay. They all think that. Obama was the first one who didn't have that delusion. Okay, okay. All right. Um, let's stop there. We'll go into more of the details of how Vietnam plays out for Johnson. Do you want to add anything else? No, I'm good. All right, so this is the first part on Johnson... Just a little bit of his background and his political skills and the beginning of his uh, decision to go into Vietnam. All right. Thanks, Phil, for that. that those were great questions. I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of that one. I hope the uh, listeners enjoy this as well as uh, I enjoyed speaking my parts in it. All right. Thanks for listening. Hope to hear from, hear from you in the comments section or um, on Twitter. And uh, take care, and we'll be updating soon.